Hi, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason. And uh, I'm really jazzed about, what, two and a half weeks now. <clears throat> We're going to be in Minneapolis, and that is the coolest reality going. All of them are pretty cool. <clears throat> we had a, a sellout in oh, Orange County one that was Biola University. That's where it was held this last year. We had, just had a sellout <clears throat> a little more than a week ago in Seattle, and then now we're headed on November 10th and 11th for our event in Minneapolis, and that thing is a blockbuster, and I'll tell you, it's the largest church in the state of Minnesota. We're not going to be able to out outgrow that one, because there's no place for us to go as long as we stay in the state, but it holds 4,000 people, and last year we had 3,800. I We got 2,557 that have already signed up, and we're still two and a half weeks out. So I think we're going to push that 4,000 number or get really close to it. And I'd love to have you go. If you're within striking distance in Minnesota or Illinois or northern Iowa or southern Iowa or Michigan even, um, certainly Wisconsin, make a trip. Take your young people. Uh, the, the deal is people who haven't been there, they just hear about it and think, oh, well, you know, sounds cool, but no, nah, whatever. Until you go. And so there's a youth group that has two people go, and then they come back and they say, you won't believe what we just experienced that weekend. The whole youth group goes the next year. So this is kind of what happens. So don't be left out if you've never been a part of a reality. People travel what from 15 states. That's kind of our average. I take these informal polls at all of our realities, and we have six of them around the country. And my apologies to middle America. <clears throat> we need one in Denver area. We need one in Cincinnati area or something like that to kind of really box the compass and take care of the inside as well. But we can't do eight. We can only do six. And so you may have to travel, but it's worth it. Take a road trip. Uh, get on a plane. Bring your kids, whatever. It's lots of fun, and it will really be a challenge, uh, a good challenge for your young people. We're targeting Middle schoolers and high schoolers, that's what reality is all about. It's the Reality Student Apologetics Conference. You find all the information you need at realityapologetics.com. All right. We have three more coming up next year in the spring. We'll be at—let me find my dates here. Um, <clears throat> we'll be in Texas, North Dallas, February 23rd and 24th. We'll be in Pennsylvania, around Philly. March 22nd, 23rd, we'll be in Georgia at—actually, uh, uh, I think we're—technically, we'll be in South Carolina, but we're just over the border there at Augusta, and that will be April 19 and 20, okay? And that will run our course for this year. So looking forward to two and a half weeks from now, um, bursting through 4,000 here of young people. And, by the way, if you're an adult, we're not checking IDs, you can come. Love to have you. No problems with that. And uh, Sean McDowell's on board with us, Lanesh Garrison, uh, Christopher Yuan is back, so is Tripp and Megan Allman. And by the way, you're going <laughs> to—was it, is it Saturday morning? They kind of—they do an event together, but they walk out on the stage on their hands. They walk out on their hands. <laughs> well, that's the only couple I know that can actually do that. And uh, very, very cool. Then they do the event together. They do their talk together. Anyway, uh, realityapologetics.com. Also want to mention here, just as we start off the show, <clears throat> John Noyes will be speaking at Heart of the Canyons Church in Newhall, California, 
Wednesday, November 1st at 7 p.m. Okay, so that's midweek, November 1st, a uh, week and a half from now or so, and uh, or is it? Maybe that's a week from tomorrow. It's a week from tomorrow as I speak. Okay. Um, Heart of the Canyons, Canyon Country here in Los Angeles area, uh, 7 p.m. And I will be speaking <clears throat> uh, next weekend at uh, the Thinking About Faith Apologetics Conference. That's in Bothell, Washington, B-O-T-H-E-L-L. I'll be there Friday. I'll be there Saturday. I'll be there Sunday, November 3rd through 5th. So I got a lot of work that weekend. Uh, glad to do it, though. And if you can make it out there, that's a little bit north of Seattle proper. Uh, I'd love to see you. Um, you can go to str.org forward slash events if you want to find all the skinny on where the different speakers are at. I want to speak to something here um, that I mentioned a few weeks ago in light of a question that came up in the air. And I can't remember if this was an uh, open mic call or uh, somebody called about it. Uh, do you remember, Amy? I don't know. Maybe an open mic call. Okay, so, oh, okay. And Amy says, it might not even have played yet. So I am answering something now that is future. Oh, okay. Well, in any event, we had a little conversation in response to a question somebody raised about the movie Nefarious. Okay. Now, I haven't seen this movie. I did see the previews uh, last week. And um, the question was, what do you think about this horror movie called Nefarious? Do you think it would be okay for Christians? Well, the way it was characterized in the question was the, I think it was the Christian horror movie called Nefarious. What do you think of it? Now, I had not heard anything about it, and um, I was a little bit suspicious of the characterization of being a Christian horror movie because I didn't know there was like a horror genre for Christian films faith-friendly kind of thing. Um, and and I'm always a little bit suspicious about these kinds of things. So, um, because <clears throat> what you often get, especially in films where um, there's a demonic manifestation as part of the story, they just seem to seldom get it right, you know, biblically speaking. There's all kinds of other things that are going on in there, and they're throwing holy water at the demon and all these other things that just aren't going to have any impact on the demon. But uh, so, again, um, sight unseen, I warned against this Christian horror movie, but with the qualifier that I really know very little about it, okay? But then we got an email uh, from a fellow named uh, Ken, and I'm really grateful for this email uh, because he kind of set the record straight regarding this film. So in light of my uh, un uninformed um, kind of response, I thought I'd read what he said about the movie, and then you can make your own judgment. Okay, um, as it turns out, both Amy and I have uh, decided that we're going to see the movie sometime, not together necessarily, but we're going to watch it, and then we can report more on it as a uh, uh, um, in, in a podcast or a, a show like this, just so you're more informed. But here is what Ken had to say. He's a standard reason guy. Okay, in my opinion, concerning the question of Friday, October thirteenth, uh, that was really odd. I noticed that. Did you check that, Amy? Amy, That we did this on October 13th, on Friday. Friday the 13th. 
Ooh, do, 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 do. do we have that sound thing for the Twilight Zone? No, we don't have sounds. Okay. Regarding uh, the question on Friday, October 13th, Santa Reason podcast um, dealing with nefarious and horror movies. This movie is not horror, not meant to scare for scaring's sake, does not exhibit gore. Oh, interesting. The question misses the entire point of the movie, which calls us to be aware of the spiritual war around us, okay, and to keep a discerning spirit regarding that war. Okay, good. It's good info. Nefarious is a movie based on Steve Deese's book, Nefarious. Steve Deese is on uh, Blaze TV with a show at noon on weekdays. Now, I don't know anything about this guy or Blaze TV, so can't help you there, but um, can't just let us know. He is a Christian who interprets current events in terms of a conspiracy of the enemy, which, by the way, I'm very sympathetic for. I think it's a great way to link about current events. I've talked about this a lot, and I don't think of just necessarily a given event. Oh, that car crash happened because of this great conspiracy of the enemy. Oh, I look at trends, and I actually talk about this in Street Smarts, The Spiritual Warfare on the Street, I think is the title of the chapter, to let people know what they're up against. And Paul talks about spiritual schemes, doesn't he, in Ephesians chapter 6. That means there are machinations, there are plans that the devil has to do his evil, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And these are behind the battle, what appears to be flesh and blood, human beings. Behind that are all these other spiritual forces that are manipulating things. So this is very biblical in principle. And what uh, Ken is saying is that this movie— this book and this movie are meant to kind of play on that understanding. Um, he continues, this is where the book and the movie Nefarious have their genesis. Uh, a man has been inhabited by a demon, <clears throat> excuse me, who is set, uh, set to be elect electrocuted. So the man has a capital punishment sentence on his head, and an atheist psychologist is named to interview this convicted criminal to verify his sanity. Nefarious the movie is not a horror movie, all caps for, for not. It is, all caps for is, a thriller. Okay, and actually when I saw the previews, I thought, all right, this one's going to have me on the edge of my seat because this looks very intense. It's written from a Christian perspective, pointing out that euthanasia and abortion for example, were the devil's ideas, and man is following the prince of the spirit of the air, which I think that's insightful. Just say it. The atmosphere of the movie is intense and keeps the audience engaged with a pile of philosophical content. And so when he says, love all the shows, videos, and articles, thanks, and then signs it off as Ken. So that was good. Okay. And because <clears throat> of this note, um, checked out the the movie itself checked out the previews and um i am interested in seeing the movie it's you can actually get it on amazon amazon prime i think it's like 299 or 399 for your little rental there which is something we do on a regular basis at our home we go to amazon prime we try to get the freebies 
but sometimes we see something that we really like. I am looking forward to seeing the the equalizer number three, but that costs twenty bucks right now to rent. Man, that's out of my price range. I'll wait till the price comes down because it's I guess still kind of in the theaters. But um, I like that franchise, and uh, it's just my kind of thing. I I like it. I, I call it like the Jason Bourne type storyline where this this guy with his incredible capabilities and he's not you know showboating or anything but if any pushes around pushes if anyone pushes him around look out you messed with the wrong guy okay and that's kind of what we see in Denzel Washington's character in this other movie series um called the equalizer um so uh, by the way that was it used to be a TV show that I kind of liked many many years ago and now it's a new show with, uh, uh, let's see, what's her name? Uh, a black, tough guy gal. Um, what's her name? Uh, oh, I just got it in the end of the tip of my tongue. Anyway, I don't like the idea at all. I've never seen one, and I just can't see a woman playing this role. It just doesn't work for me. So, uh, um, Princess, let, whatever. I don't even think I got her name right. And nobody's helped me out here on the other side. Oh, nobody knows. Okay. But um, that's not a part for a girl. Sorry. Or female. Sorry. My opinion. In any event, um, I was asked a question today. We got a bunch of callers on. I want to get to your calls in just a moment. But I, um, I was standing in our office, and I just happened to be gazing at uh, a picture. And actually, it's like a certificate that has my picture in it. And it's the certificate of my... Um, what would you call it? Launching as the president of the stand of Stand a Reason. So in May first, nineteen ninety three, we launched Stand a Reason with this meeting, and then it took us, you know, a year to kind of get everything going, get our legal work together, and whatever, and see if this thing's going to hunt, all right, and whether I'm going to go leave my position at Hope Chapel at Hermosa Beach, and Melinda Penner then came up into my position part-time, and then also into Stand to Reason, another part-time. So we kind of had this amalgam of work projects going until I was finally commissioned in the fall of 94. And there was the laying on of hands and, and the, the kind of a, the certificate or the commemoration there with the picture of people laying hands on me at Hope Chapel at Hermosa Beach. I was just thinking about it, you know, and all the years, the 30 years that have passed since then, and all the things that God has done, which really, genuinely, are a complete surprise to me. I had no expectation whatsoever of this. And one of my teammates asked me at the time, and earlier today, when I'm looking at, at the picture and just kind of reflecting on it, they said, what would you do differently. If you knew then what you know now, what would you do differently? And I had to think about this for a long time because um, I have talked on this show about regrets. And when I hear people say, man, I've lived a full life, I have no regrets. I, I cannot relate to that at all. How can a person live a whole life and not have regrets? not have, look back in their life and see things that were stupid that they did or foolish that they did or hurtful or harmful or destructive to themselves or others that they did, and they wouldn't want to undo that. I can think of a host of things in my life that if I had 
to do those things over again, I would do them very differently. Okay? And not because of, you know, harm that came to me, but I think that harm that came to other people as a result of the decisions that I made or the way that I acted. And uh, But the, the life sketch aside, um, when it comes to stand to reason as an organization and the broad strokes of decisions I've made in places, what we pursued and how we pursued it these last 30 years, um, my, my impulse was pretty much to say, I, I, I don't think I'd change anything. I, I, I don't know I, I would do things differently. Again, the broad strokes there. Are there incidental conversations I had with people or events that uh, I got crossways on or whatever? Yeah, that, but I'm, I'm thinking in the, the bigger picture here, what I would do um, differently. And even though I made mistakes in a number of things, I, I, I don't think there was some big organizational blunders. And I think there's a reason for this, because I, I've had, and I'm just offering this thought because it might be helpful to you. And I shared with my team, with my uh, inside group, my Peter, James, and John group, our content providers, our speakers, as we met together last week, uh, about some of these things, because I'm trying to pass these notions on. I'm, 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 you know, this is in a certain way part of me passing the baton to those who I call my young guns. Right? Here's some things that I've learned, and and <clears throat> and uh, and you have heard me say this many times, uh, and but I'm just going to say it again because it it turns out to have been at the heart of our philosophy of ministry for all these thirty years, even when it didn't congeal in my mind as such. I realize as I look back, this was it. And the first part of that is bloom where you're planted. And the second part of that is be a student of your craft. And so what my life has been for 50 years, really, and particularly the last 30 with Stand a Reason, has just been an attempt not to build an empire, not to build an organization, not to build a name. Um, instead, it was to have an impact by being faithful with whatever God had given me at that moment. I wasn't long looking. And Melinda and I talked about this for, you know, many times. We're not visionaries. Now, some people might take exception with that. I know that's all right. But that, it isn't the way we saw ourselves. Like, we're looking out into this future, into the future, and we're thinking, what could be? What could be? And we never thought about that. We thought, what's the, what is the need at the moment that we can speak to and be faithful to with the gifts that we have? That was it. And in the way we were doing it, we were trying to get better at it. We were trying to be a student of our craft. And whether, and now I'm speaking we, large, more largely the, the, the whole team at Stand to Reason, can we get better at what we do, whether it's communication or writing or graphics or, um, you know, busy work or managing information, whatever it happened to be. Let's get better at it. Let's do it well. Let's put our heart and our soul into it. Let's get her done. Kyle can tell you that's a phrase he uses a lot here. He gives me about 10 boxes of books. He said, hey, can you sign these? I said, oh, let's get her done. 
We just nail, we just sit down and nail it. All right. Well, not we, because I'm the one who's doing all the work, and, and all Kyle does is carry the boxes, which I appreciate. But it's just get her done. And um, when I wrote the letter that you'll be getting in December, those of you who receive our stuff, and by the way, if you don't receive our, our monthly stuff, you really need to, because we put it out there. There's no charge. It's for you to help you to grow as a follower of Christ in the midst of this crazy culture. Every other month, it's a solid ground. Alternating months, it's a mentoring letter. And then there's a couple of odds and ends that you get here and there. But it's all for that same purpose, to nurture you, to build you, to strengthen you, to to make you into a better ambassador for Christ. Anyway, we just kind of did some stuff for the end of year, and I was talking about Cal Ripken. Now, some of you don't know who this guy is, but Cal Ripken is a famous baseball player, and he's famous because he always showed up 2,632 games in a row. It's a record. All right? He suited up, and he got on the field, and he did his job. And I think of Stand a Reason like that. I don't—I don't—I think of Stand a Reason as not trying to hit home runs, but but rather showing up every day and hitting— Singles and doubles and singles and doubles. All right. And those base hits add up over time. Now, it's a, a clever little analogy, I guess, but I'm not trying to be clever. I actually think this communicates in a very clear sense what has made the biggest difference for us at Stand to Reason over the years. And this is key. It's over the years. We were about 10 years or so into Stand to Reason, and Frank Beckwith used to say, well, you guys are the best-kept secret in the country. I can't believe what you are producing and what you're doing and your shows and blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing, but people don't know who you are. Now, some of you might be surprised to think now 30 years into the project that that could be the case, but it was. We were a small operation out of Southern California. We had good communicators. We did what we could, where we could. I had done some work with Focus of the Family. I'd written a book, Tactics. I actually wrote a piece on abortion even before that, Precious Unborn Human Persons, and then all the things that we did on the radio and commentaries and the website and all that other stuff. But still, you know, we were just kind of putting along. And so we had a board meeting, and we talked about that, you know, Frank says we're, we need to be better known, which I was all game for that. But how do we do that? And uh, one way <laughs> people do that is they do something really bad, and then the whole world finds out about it. They become a household word for a couple of weeks or months, and then they disappear. We don't want that. So we decided maybe we'll uh, spend some time, we'll spend some money, and get an agency that can do some PR for, for us, and I would be on the point as a representative for that. So we, we put it into the budget, we hired an agency, and then they started arranging interviews. I remember one interview that I had with, I think it was Newsweek, or maybe U.S. News and World Report. And uh, at this time, <clears throat> the and I probably told you this story before, but the guy that was interviewing me, he said, why is it that you Christians only talk about abortion and homosexuality? And I said, that's not all we talk about. That's all you write about. <laughs> and our conversation lasted for 45 minutes. I gave him lots of good material, of which not a single syllable ended up in the article that he was writing for. Why? Not the narrative he was looking for. 
okay. And then I get more interviews, but it, it did seem that they always wanted to talk to me about those two issues. And I felt like we're wasting our time. We're wasting our money. Okay, let's just, let's just can this crowd and this strategy is not working is the point. And let's just move on with what we have been doing. Okay, then about six or seven or eight years later, after a period of time had passed, and Stand to Reason as an organization began to mature, um, as we got a larger foothold, so to speak, in our community, as our influence began to spread, not just nationally, but internationally as well, as all these things began to happen, we must have been 20 years or maybe a, a little bit more into Stand to Reason. And we had a board meeting. And I went back to the board and I said, you know, remember when we talked about that? Were the, were the, uh, your best kept secret? And we tried to figure out a way so we wouldn't be so secret. Remember that time? Well, guess what? And this was an observation as I looked around. We weren't a be the best kept secret anymore. We weren't a secret. Over that time of plodding along, and building brick by brick, God had built something significant. And we were reaching out in a very effective way in lots of venues. By this time, I think uh, reality, which we used to be called Rethink, had already started up, and this was a way of passing the baton to the next generation. And all of these things were really flowing. And I had a new book called the story of reality, and later the 10th anniversary. And all of these things contributed to the momentum. But notice it was never one big thing. It was just, as I mentioned a moment ago, brick by brick, or go to go back to my originally analog singles and doubles, singles and doubles, singles and levels. And that's what I told them. Look, we're, we're, we're in a great place now, but it's because of singles and doubles, not home runs. You know, the, the greatest home run hitters, they were all strikeout kings. They hit a lot of home runs, and they fanned a lot, too. And uh, I didn't want to take that chance. I just wanted to lay it down day by day, day by day. That was our work ethic. First ones to the event, last ones to leave. That's the way it is for us, okay? We're just going to show up every single day. We're going to be the Cal Ripkins. And I'm not suggesting other people in our fraternity um, are, are different. I'm just saying this is the way we, we, we have been, and this is what has made the difference. Now, there's an application here for you. And I actually I don't have the story—rather, I don't have uh, Street Smarts here in front of me, but the very last chapter, I do talk about this. Because I want to be an encouragement to those Christians who find themselves <clears throat> um, in a circumstance— where they are, are f swimming upstream with the culture and maybe with friends and family and feel like they're not making much of a difference. And they don't know that the things that they've been saying or doing or whatever are ever going to bear any fruit. And, of course, we don't know that's the case. We cannot see that. This is when I offer the account of my encounter with the young lady, Adrian Thatcher, in 1973 in the summer before I was a Christian, that that small, short encounter, after which I never saw her again in my life, really set the stage, a trajectory for me as a Christian because of things that eventuated from that. Again, I won't go in detail in that, the last chapter of Street Smarts. But she doesn't know how God used that encounter to influence even you who are listening right now. 
because the trajectory that she influenced has led me to this spot in my life right now. And apart from that influence, the trajectory would have been different, period. I know that. Now, it doesn't mean God wouldn't have used me. But uh, as it turns out, God did use her. And he can be using others as well. But what was she doing? She was just laying it down for one guy. Not a big audience. One guy on a bus. Talking to him, the non-Christian, long-haired, wet-haired, I'd just been body surfing in Santa Monica Beach, guy who is making conversation with her on the bus. Yet God used it for incredible things. And that's all, that's the deal. That's the way it works. That's why singles and doubles are enough. And in fact, part of what I said to, to my team was, I don't want them to want to hit Grand Slams. I don't want them to want that. What I want them to do, and, and again, I'm not telling them anything new, so it isn't like they're not doing this. It's just my steady input. What I want them to do is take what's in front of them and do a great job with it. Whatever it is that you're given. And as the Proverbs says, you find a man skilled in his work, and he will stand before kings. You find a man skilled in his work, and he will stand before kings. The goal is not to stand before kings. The goal is the work, to do it with skill, and especially as a follower of Jesus and in, in, in the presence of our audience of one, capital O-N-E, to do it faithfully. Singles and doubles, singles and doubles, um, blooming where you're planted, being a student of your craft. And by the way, just a qualification here. This is not a recipe for greatness. It is a recipe for faithfulness. It is not a recipe for greatness. I'm not telling you, here's how to be great in your spiritual enterprise by at least one certain standard, okay? Whether you're doing a ministry and it's going to expand, or you got some work and you want it to be big, or you've got a project, you want to sell a lot or speak a lot or have these big audiences, I don't know about that, and I'm not giving you a recipe for that. I don't want you to seek greatness. If you can handle it, God will give it to you, if you can handle it, if you can manage it, if you don't mess things up by it. It's not a recipe for greatness. It's a recipe for faithfulness. And, I, you know, reflectively, 30 years, this is the way it's been for us at Stand to Reason. And by the way, many of you have been a part of that. All right, I'm just saying. We're not the only ones hitting singles and doubles. We've had a great team of faithful partners, financially and prayer-wise, that are out there. Singles and doubles, singles and doubles, singles and doubles. Great. We love it. That's a solid foundation to build on over 30 years, to have whatever it is in terms of impact and influence that God has given us. And we are happy with that whatever it is. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll come back to your calls on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? 
Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. on board. Wow. I always like that. Okay, let's go to um, Vancouver, B.C. Daniel, welcome to Stand to Reason. Hi, Greg. How are you? Good. I'm doing fine. Thank you. What's uh, it's up? great to speak to you, Thank Greg. You. Uh, I'm, I'm, I really um, I want to preface, before I get to my question, I just want to say that I am a strategic partner, and I Ooh. really believe in what you guys do at Stand to Reason. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, you got an earful yeah. of my opening remarks then about just my whole philosophy about where God's brought us. So um, I really appreciate your encouragement, your support, and your singles and doubles on our behalf. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about old earth creationism. Okay. Um, I hold to the young earth view myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate one thing. When you talk about young earth creationism and young earth creationists, you're always quite respectful. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to thank you for that, first of all. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyways, I wanted to, um, uh, first of all, I wanted to start with a point of agreement. So okay. um, you and I agree about evolution. So I think you agree that natural causes can't explain how life got here, correct? That's right. Yeah, the whole blind watchmaker thesis, if you want to sum up the Darwinian project in with that kind of language, which is Richard Dawkins' language, uh, I completely reject that notion because it's completely inadequate to explain anything in the natural realm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and you've, you've observed before that uh, many theistic evolutionists struggle to answer the question, what did God do? Right. Because um, if, if natural causes are enough, then why would you add God, right? That's right, because what, what they often will say is, and it sounds appealing at first, well, God used evolution, okay? And that satisfies lots of people. But it didn't satisfy me, which is why I asked the question, well, what is it that God actually did to use evolution to accomplish a certain end? And uh, and I'm just filling in the spaces here for people who may not be as familiar with my view as, as you are when you're asking your question, Dan. But the um, if uh, if when you talk to these people, especially the the majority, I think, of theistic evolutionists, it it seems like like the natural processes are adequate to the task. All of the natural things, uh, genetic mutation, natural selection, that's the core of neo-Darwinism, these seem all to be adequate to the task. So then what point does it say that God used a natural process which all by itself without God can do what the evolutionists claim it can do? That seems like you're over-determining the cause. And uh, yeah, I think that's a liability. So I, w- I want to take that same issue. I want to take your question to the theistic evolutionist, and I want to apply it to older creationism, but not about life, about everything else in creation. Mm-hmm. So stars, planets, galaxies. Um, are natural causes sufficient to get from the Big Bang to all of these other things, on your view? Um, that needs to be qualified. And what I would say is, um, from the Big Bang— to planet formation, etc., all of those kinds of things. I think that the answer is yes, and that's because, um, in terms of the um, the the the, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here, like the, uh, uh, the the math, so to speak, or the calculus of it all. Um, the origin of the once once what you. Uh, Again, I'm thinking about the trying to think of the best way to characterize this. When when God creates and in a certain sense explodes everything into existence, however you want to characterize that, Big Bang or otherwise, we all believe in the beginning God created, and so it was a, there was nothing, and then there was something that was happening. Okay, and God was working. All right, but um, to me, it makes perfect sense for Him to set the initial conditions of the Big Bang in such a way that all of the other physical consequences of of star formation and planet formation, everything else that happens over a long period of time, could happen. It's just a sophisticated series of dominoes falling. It's all a physicalistic um, event until you get to a certain point. And I don't see any reason why that can't happen, because in a certain sense, that's not very complicated. All right, but when you get to the origin of uh, the of of the and, the, and here's where you have singularities. So the first singularity is the origin of everything. In the beginning, God created Big Bang, however you want to call it. Then you got the origin of life. Now this is a situation where ab, where new information has to be added into the cosmos in order for inanimate chemicals to to become animate, to go from dead stuff to living stuff, you have to have that, I think, is a singularity where God has to intervene and put in new information, 
Okay. Now, there are a lot of evolutionists who don't think that. They think you can go from Big Bang all the way to biological evolution, and it's all dominoes falling. But that just is not the case. Um, That's called fully gifted creation in that view. And they think that if if God has to intervene at some other point and put in more information, that shows that God didn't do it right to begin with. But I don't see that as a liability at all. I think that God created the environment for life, and then he created life, okay? And uh, at every stage where there is novelty that show up in the biological world, you have to have new information. You have to have new biological information. And that is, none of that is going to come about through any naturalistic process. I'm completely convinced of that. So there are all kinds of uh, points where God intervenes, and I'm just thinking of these now, um, uh, Daniel, as as uh, um, I'm taking general points. I, I I don't I can't tell you what that looks like. I can't say at this point, at this in time, then he did this kind of thing. All I'm saying is, whenever you have biological novelty as opposed to the kind of variation that you can get with any, within any particular kind that exists, okay? Just through what might be called um, uh, microevolution, just changes that are really inconsequential to biological development on the big scale. If you want biological development on a big scale, you need new information. And in order to get that information, you're not going to get it by any naturalistic process. This is absolutely clear, and therefore God is going to have to intervene. So there could be lots and lots of times where God, and I mean, there would be lots and lots of times when God would, through special acts of creation, be making, adding information into the, the, uh, the, the, the bio, uh, the genome, the biological genome of living things in order to move things forward. So I think that's required. I think you also have another kind of singularity uh, with the beginning of consciousness. Okay. Now, I don't mean male human consciousness. I mean just any animal consciousness, because there is no—consciousness is not physical. And so consciousness has to be a separate kind of enterprise. Physical processes cannot produce consciousness. I'm also convinced of that. And then you have another Big Bang with the origin of human beings. I'm just using these—another singularity, if you will, and that, and, and because humans are unique. And uh, and so God creates something different than all the other living beings. He creates our original parents made in his image that are then the adults or the parents of all the human progeny that follow. And because they fall before they reproduced, all the human progeny are fallen because they reproduce after their own kind. So there's a mouthful. I mean, that's my general take on it. Um, I can't get more specific because I don't know more of the details, but that's where I think the new information, the creative acts are going to have to take place. New information for the biological realm, conscious life, and human beings made in the image of God. So it sounds to me like you you disagree with theistic evolutionists about life, but about everything else in creation, you could agree with the theistic evolutionists. Well, no, because the theistic evolutionist thinks that every single stage of change from one biological form to another over time, if you think about descent with modification, uh, that also can be done through the naturalistic process of, of right. mutation and natural selection. And I deny right. that. So, I don't think it is so possible. Every, so what I'm saying is everything about life 
you would hold a different view than the theistic evolutionist. So not just the origin, but the, you know, the development of life. The novel um, development of life. I do think that yeah. minor changes that are relatively inconsequential can happen through right. microevolution. Right. So you would you would disagree on on some pretty heavy points, as would I, with the theistic sure. evolutionist. But but when it comes to you know stars and planets and things like that, you're very much in agreement. God God sets up initial conditions. He lets it run for billions of years, and then these things kind of form themselves. Yeah, the, the dominoes fall. I don't see any reason why that's not possible. I think in the biological realm, it is not possible because of what we know. Then it becomes a. So we're actually talking about two different things. One is you know physical possibility, and I think that is possible with the so-called evolution of the solar system, or rather the uh, the universe, but not the evolution of life, okay? And then we then the question is, well, what actually took place? So um, it seems to me, I'm pretty convinced that the universe is very, very old, and that these it developed over a period of time according to a certain pattern like the dominoes falling. And this seems to be very well documented how this took place. So I don't have any problem with that. I don't think it creates any problem for me with theologically either. Well, I mean, I guess my question then would be, what, what do you mean when you say that God created the earth, for example? What does that actually mean on your view? Well, if I, if I um, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a pen in my hand right now. Okay, and so I am writing a word, W A word A W O R D. Okay, now I'm writing it, but I'm using a pen to accomplish that. Actually, the letters came out of the ink on the end of the pen. All right, so I'm a primary cause using a secondary um, means to accomplish that end. Okay, so God is responsible for the way the earth is now, the earth is, because of the conditions that he set up at the very beginning, okay? Just like when Scripture says, you knit me in my mother's womb, I don't think anybody believes that God is actually putting babies together in, in utero, but rather that the whole process of birth is something that God ordained to be accomplished through secondary causes. And so he is the one ultimately responsible for that whole thing, such that we could say that he is the one who, quote-unquote, knit us in the womb, just like as I am the one who wrote this A word on the piece of paper. It's secondary causes, or okay, secondary I mean, means, if you want to put it that way. To, I mean, to th I think an important difference there would be the um, you know the the passage about knitting together in the womb would be a poetic passage yeah. whereas Genesis I don't I don't think many would argue that Genesis is poetic. Well, it, that's the question, isn't it? How much of it is figurative or uh, or meant to be taken a, in maybe a literalistic kind of fashion? And uh, and I think both. Both ways of understanding it, literalistically, if you're using the word day to refer to um, a, a solar day, which would be a 24-hour day, or, of course, there are other uses of day. It could be daytime. That's another way uh, that, it's, that, that the word is used. Um, a lot depends on how those words are meant to be understood in the passage. Okay? So I guess the answer to that is yes. It, yeah, it kind of depends. I don't. I don't actually 
let me maybe let me back up because you made the comparison. You said this is poetry. I don't know exactly how to characterize. I wouldn't characterize Genesis one as poetry, but I wouldn't characterize it as a straightforward history either, for a number of reasons. And so, because that raises those questions in mind, and also because there's external evidence that uh, I think can help inform our her- hermeneutic as to what the nature of the the cosmos is actually like, um, I'm not, I don't prefer that young earth way of understanding the text. Yep, yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. So what do you think about um, methodological naturalism then? Because obviously you'd criticize the use of that with, with regards to evolution, you know, the origin of life and all these sorts of things. But um, are you in fact, in fact, applying methodological naturalism to all the non-living parts of the universe? Um, I have to think about that. Usually that is um, a phrase that's used to apply to the biological realm. In other words, we have to, in our methodology, we have to move forward as if naturalism is true. But I, that's not my view. What I think we have to move forward with is the idea that God created a world of cause and effect where certain patterns are in place that we can observe and that create certain ends that God intends. And then we observe those patterns and we can do stuff with what we what we learn. And uh, so uh, I, I think most of the world, let's just start with the biological world for now, most of the biological world and all the features of the world and every uh, biological realm should be first understood according to the natural um, patterns that characteristically result in the effects that we see. And we follow that unless we have reason to depart from that and think that it's not event causation that is adequate to explain what we see. It's agent causation. And we do that in forensics, for example, forensic pathology. This guy didn't die of natural causes. He's got three bullet holes in his chest. You know, you know, an agent was involved in this uh, in this, the demise of this individual. Okay, so rather than use the this phrase, which is kind of a loaded phrase, I think um, methodological naturalism. I think we can we can use the our understanding of what what has been called natural law to explain all kinds of things, but it can't explain everything. And by the way, natural law can't even explain natural law. So these are the reason. These are the circumstances in which we have to appeal to a a sensible, reasonable um, uh, alternative. Not alternative, but other factor, and that is agent causation. God made the world in this certain way, and that's why the world operates the way it is. And this is why we can discover what we discover about it because it operates according to a certain pattern. I don't see any reason why not to apply that to the development of the universe, because in the standard development of the universe, the cosmological development, um, I, I, from what I understand, I don't see any additional singularities that can't just be explained by event causation over a longer period of time. I guess what I'm wondering, though, is like, where, how do you know how far to take the, the uh, kind of natural explanations, the normal way, way of operating things? Because... Um, for example, the expansion of the universe, right? You can extrapolate that back and say, okay, well, if you extrapolate back far enough, you get to a single point, and we call that the Big Bang. But um, 
you know, why why do you extrapolate that far? Why do you assume that that God didn't intervene at some later point in in the expansion? Why did he have to create at the the single point? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting the way you put it, though. You said, why do you extrapolate that far? Why do you assume? If I'm extrapolating, I'm not assuming. What I'm doing is... extrapolation is an assumption, though, isn't it? Well, I guess a lot lot would... Well, I guess you could say, if I see a car going down the road, you know, at 10 miles an hour, then I can extrapolate from that, that in three minutes, he's going to be down at the next part of the road, or the other way around, looking in the past, I look back in the past based on what I see in the present, okay? That is a, a, a way of reasoning. It isn't an assumption. I'm just, just making it up. I'm trying to put the pieces together. So that's why I make that distinction. I don't think it's just an assumption. It's I'm trying to go with the evidence, an explanation that fits the evidence that we have, that is adequate. And so far... Right. I mean, but you, you can... Oh, sorry to interrupt, but no, you, you can extrapolate with the car example. You can extrapolate backwards. You can say, well, five hours ago, that car was driving across the Pacific Ocean, right? And <laughs> so at some point, that an agent must have changed something with the car, you know? He had the brakes on, and then he put the gas on. The velocity mm-hmm. changed. So, right, that's so right. That's the danger of extrapolating, right? You no. have to understand where the agent intervened. Well, no. Uh, what, what you would have—I would do just what you did. What I would do is I would realize that this extrapolation is going to take me, if I'm not careful with it, into a circumstance that's absolutely impossible. So I have to take that into account when I make my assessment based on the extrapolation. So obviously the car's not going to drive across the ocean. Something must have intervened. And that's where I'm going to say, what was it that intervened? But in the case of the development of the universe, I don't see those problems that I have to say, oh, this is a huge problem. Like, for example, the origin of consciousness or the origin of, uh, of life uh, or the origin of – what was the other one I mentioned? Uh, origin of life. Origin of the universe. I mean these, these – uh, or, or the origin of man. You know, I think these are very unique circumstances that the natural processes that we observe all the time and we assess our world with – and also, uh, or in light of, and also use to our benefit, um, those natural processes seem like they're adequate to the task. So this is kind of an Occam's razor. Why add more details that are not necessary? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. So it sounds to me like you're, you're open to the idea that if the naturalistic models of the universe don't work, you could you could look at other kind of creationist alternatives other than like a, um, you know, God does the Big Bang and steps away for 13 billion years. Well, I mean, that's kind of a pejorative way of putting it. Um, it's like it's like I uh, my wife made uh, chicken last night. So she put it on the stove. She set it up in a certain way, set the timer and stepped away. Well, the whole process as it continued was a result of her design, and it was moving in the direction the way she wanted. And when it got to a point where it was ready to serve on the table, then she intervened with agent causation, and she put it on the table for us to eat. So it isn't like God's—I mean, to say she stepped away, it isn't like, okay, now she's inactive, and everything's working on its own, and it doesn't require God to do that. 
Well, sure it did. It, it, God set up the process, and again, back to the illustration with my wife, she had to set this up in a particular way so that it would be food for us in an hour, and then we could have a nice meal. And I actually think that's a pretty good illustration um, of, the, of, of the way that the, the universe works. By the way, I, my suspicion is young Earth, old Earth, everybody is employing that kind of understanding of the development of things in the universe, we just will dis will just disagree at maybe at certain points whether that process was adequate, that process set into motion was adequate to accomplish certain ends. That's where you and I disagree, certainly, with the theistic evolutionists when it comes yeah. to, to life, the origin of life. I, I think that we, the young Earth creationist view is that the creative activity happens at the beginning. Um, and whereas um, on the old Earth creationist view, there's creative activity at the beginning, and then there's a gap, and then there's another creative activity with the origin of life, and then another gap, and 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 this sort of thing. And this is this is something that William Lane Craig has been criticizing actually on his podcast. I don't know mm -hmm. if you listen to that. No, I, but, I do on occasion, uh, but you yeah. know, I haven't listened to it in a while. But um, well, in, in a certain sense. A lot depends right here on what you understand the beginning to be. If the beginning is a week and after the week everything is all completely done, a solar, a week of solar days, well, that's one thing. If that's not the way that passage is to be understood, but rather it's meant to be understood in a different fashion, well, then that's going to result in different conclusions about it. Uh, Got to run there, Daniel. I loved the conversation, and I really appreciate your spirit. It was great talking with you and hope it provided some insight into my own view. All right, friends, that's it. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.